Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and we have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you'd like to discuss on the podcast, I would be delighted to hear from you. You can email me at press at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 28th of August 2017 and this is episode number 29. It is all time and we are taking a seasonal break until September. Until we resume our normal round of podcast interviews, I wanted to share with you some of the talks given to my local branch, that is the Antrim and Down branch of the WFA, over the last few months. In this episode, Dr Chris Manson talks about commemoration of World War I in Ireland. He gave this talk to the branch in 2016. I do hope you enjoy it. Okay, first of all, good evening. Thank you all for, for coming out. I recognise most people from Saturday, uh, another great day I had. So I'd like to thank the, the Western Front Association for their invitation this evening, and especially to Robert Corbett, who I've just found out uh, did you just say he was to do tonight, but he's wrote me in to do it for him? Fair enough, okay. <laughs> recruitment, recruitment. That's not, that's not on my subject list tonight, but that is an area that we can discuss at, at some other time. So in the last few years, I've been involved with Richard Grayson, so it was great to hear him on Saturday. Um, and I was saying this to the guys before we started this evening, that it's really nice to hear some new research going on um, and some new developments and looking at areas that... Um, need a bit more examination and perhaps uh, as I'll talk later on as he was saying that maybe he wants to back off in some areas and not probe too much as it might change our view. Um, I've also worked with Fergal McGarry and Philip Orr um, with the Mid-Andrew Museums. Uh, We've been doing some work around the North Coast around the memorials and remembrance and and that's been quite interesting. Some of the stories that we've heard and some of the the narratives um, and the different ways that we've been able to approach that. And just to mention as well that um, I'm here today because of Keith Jeffrey. Keith Jeffrey was my PhD supervisor, and uh, it's thanks to him that I have such an interest in this topic. Um, he was my lecturer as an undergrad, and then I continued through, so um, we'll still remember him this evening. So this evening, I'm going to examine the areas where most finish, what happened when the war ended. Today, most of us understand commemoration and what it represents. It seems that it has been around for thousands of years, but the form of commemoration used today is something that Eric Hobsbawm described as an invented tradition, something that did not celebrate a lengthy history but appeared to always been in place. In fact, as we will discuss, a week before the anniversary of the end of the war, no major plan was yet in place. So picture the scene. Belfast City Centre, 1918. It was the 11th of November, a, a, a typically chilly November morning and it just seemed like any other day. The Great War, as it was then called, had proceeded for over 1500 days. News of what was happening in the Western Front slowly filtered through to the Home Front after being snipped by the censor and the list of names of those who would not return continued to appear in the press day after day. However, there was a a flicker of light at the end of the tunnel. The newspapers had been reporting that the war might soon end a cessation of fighting. There was expectancy. The Belfast newspaper, The Northern Whig, declared that events were moving at such a pace that comment was in danger of being out of date before it reached the reader. And indeed, this proved to be the case. As just before 11am, a telegram arrived at City Hall for the Lord Mayor, announcing, announcing that was termed an armistice had been signed. The war was effectively over. The telegram was subsequently sent to newspaper offices across the city, and as the news quickly spread, the streets soon thronged with people celebrating the news. <laughs> In the shipyards and mills and other big industrial establishments, the news spread like wildfire. Workers stopped immediately, and by general consent, the rest of the day was declared a holiday. At exactly 11am in Belfast General Post Office, telegraph staff stood the attention attention to sing the first verse of the British National Anthem, followed by three cheers for those from the office who had joined the colours and gone out to fight. Close by, in Belfast Harbour, the sound of ship's sirens added to the chorus of celebration which was beginning to reverberate out from the city hall across the province. With the unanticipated suspension of work, shipyard employees marched in in a flannix into the city centre, headed by a band. However, as the papers suggested, a hooligan fringe 
used the opportunity to loot shops and cause wanton damage. But when the group arrived at Belfast city centre, they met mass crowds waving Union Jacks and other Allied flags. So by midday, and this is a bit of a cheat because this was 1919, Peace Day, but by midday the city was heaving with immense crowds heralding the end of the war and the statue of Queen Victoria at the front of the city hall had been draped with the Union Jack and the tricolour, that is, the French national flag. <laughs> Elsewhere in the city, hastily arranged Thanksgiving services were being organised, such as St Anne's Church of Ireland Cathedral, the Presbyterian Assembly buildings and several other city churches and with the unexpected holiday, they were very largely attended. Yet the focus of Peace Day celebrations, and of course they were, it was called Peace Day um, at this stage, we had a long way to go, or well, 18 years in fact, before um, the tide would begin to change. So the focus of these Peace Day celebrations were concentrated around the City Hall, with brass and flute bands parading and surrounding thoroughfares and the bells of assembly buildings, declaring to those who had not already realised that peace had been declared. By mid-afternoon tram cars, after vain attempts to continue the cross-town service, could only travel back and forwards on several sections outside the central zone. Soldiers and sailors, wherever they were met by the crowd, said the Belfast Telegraph, were carried shoulder high, and a large military contingent joined the celebrations, emerging from <coughs> barracks headed by drums, bugles and pipes. The Northern Whig declared, The citizens cast business and all other care for the time being to the winds, and joined in a general jubilation, the like of which has never been seen in Belfast before. As the afternoon crept into the evening, the festivities continued, and the Irish News said the city was crowded until midnight. The Belfast tele Telegraph declared the air was filled with the singing of the national anthem and other patriotic songs, and close by in Castle Place, an immense game of Ring of Roses entertained the crowds. As darkness fell, rockets and fireworks added to the excitement of celebration. The, te the, telegraph, the Belfast Telegraph declared, With the drumming, the bands and the crowds around the Albert, Peace Night was like a, a dozen 11th July nights and New Year's Eve watch nights rolled into one. The celebrations were not confined to the city streets. At the Grand Opera House, the planned performances went ahead, but in light of the great news, the audience was in buoyant form. During the play Tiger's Cub, some of the spectators joined the cast on the stage and in the good-humoured good atmosphere. Towards the end of the line, oh, I wish I knew the father of that brat, a reply emerged from the stalls, Kaiser Bill, leading to an outburst of laughter in the theatre. At the Avenue Picture House, a special Peace Day programme was organised. The orchestra, for the duration of the interval, playing the Belgian, Italian and British national anthems, followed by Rule Britannia. Pictures of Marshal Foch, the Allied kings and presidents accompanied the anthems. The evening continued with celebration in good humour and tone, perhaps taking the edge of the cold November night. Of course, the role of the war, or, or Ireland in the war effort, was not confined to Belfast. As Richard Grayson reminded us on Saturday, men from every county of the province had joined the colours, and as a result, victory and peace were also greeted with great re relief and enthusiasm elsewhere, as the news of the end of the war um, spread out like the ripples of a pond to other towns and villages across Ireland. In Armagh, the bells of St Patrick's Church of Ireland Cathedral declared peace, and as people heard the news, flags and bunting were hoisted across the city. In Ballymena, the end of the war was welcomed with great rejoicing, and many workers received a holiday from lunchtime, when the mill and factory horns marked an early end to what, has commenced, uh, what had commenced as a normal working day. On the coast of Bangor, a government boat and fishing trawlers were decorated with bunting, and made their own contribution, adding to the cacophony of bells, horns and sirens in the area. Across the lock at Carrickfergus, the festivities were aided by the band of the 6th Royal Fusiliers who paraded through the town. And in Coleraine, where according to the, I have to add this one in, according to the Northern Whig, an eighth of the men had gone to fight, the news also evoked elation, and the bells of St Patrick's Church of Ireland, as well as the town hall, rung out celebrating the declaration of the end of the war. Nearby, in factories and at the gasworks, the sound of horns added to the commotion, and business was suspended for the afternoon. Enjoying the holiday, away from the classroom and shop floor, a procession of factory girls and other young people paraded through the town, followed by a service of thanksgiving held at the Diamond. Cheers were given for the Ulster Division, especially for the local dairy battalion of the Royal Enniskillings. 
in Cumber. The reception of the news was well. Hopefully, I'll cover most people. <laughs> most people are from. With any luck, the reception of the news was welcomed by the sounding of the Sarn John Andrew and Son spinning mill at eleven forty-five. So you can see that it took a little longer for the news to spread out. You'll understand the context of why I'm giving so much this detail very shortly. The company quickly declared a half day. The Whig reported that the signing of the armistice was also received with great enthusiasm in Londonderry. The ringing of the Protestant cathedral's bell shortly after 11am indicated how the news had spread to certain parts of the country. And ships in the quay ran up bunting, and for, and for a considerable period the sound of their sirens reverberated through the city and countryside. In Oman, after the news of peace was known, army transport cars appeared, drew up with Union Jacks and aeroplanes, and they gaudily decorated, you know, they, they had bunting appeared in the sky, discharged rockets, and it, uh, sent down shards of coloured paper. So it was, you can imagine um, the excitement. And in Port Rush, it was very similar. Uh, after the officials had finished uh, uh, the council business, um, they donned their red, white, and blue rosettes and, and paraded to Holy Trinity Parish Church. In Eskillen, meanwhile, boasted that it was one of the first places to hear of the news of the armistice. The Fermanagh Times alleged, it sounds a very big claim to make, but we have abundant evidence to prove that Inneskillen was the first town in the United Kingdom to hear the glad tidings on Monday morning. The paper claimed that while in London, Glasgow, Belfast and Dublin were still seeking confirmation of the news, Inneskillen was already celebrating. In the local military barracks, operators in charge of the wireless station had been on the QV all night in the hope of some news. After 6.30am, a faint message was heard, claimed to be the rating of Fosch's historic uh, text outlining an armistice would be effective from 11am. The document had finally been signed at, at 5am French time and uh, signals announcing imminent ceasefire then began to flow out in all directions. Later in the day, being the November Haring Fair, the town was busier than usual and the streets were, were soon decorated with flags and bunting. The Fermanagh Times again said, a noticeable and regrettable feature was the fact that our nationalist townspeople held suddenly aloof adding that only one or two of the nationalist buildings in the town displayed a flag or, manifest, or manifested that the war was over. In the afternoon, a company of soldiers gathered round a piano while people danced in the streets. A Belfast Telegraph journalist travelling towards Inneskillen said that as he approached, cheers could be heard from the, roof, from the hilltops in Fermanagh as little villages draped with flags and festooned with bunting declared the peace. As he motored on towards other towns, he found that Portadown was decorated as, as for a 12th of July, that's most year round, while Lurgan was beflagged with rejoicing crowds parading in the streets. In Maguire's Bridge, the local band played for a torchlit procession, but not before objection. The police sergeant said no band could play in fear of breaking the strict Defence of the Realm Act regulations. The Fermanagh Times reported, Mr Andy Armstrong, the big drummer of the band, surprised to hear of any opposition, told the sergeant, sergeant in plain language that place or no place they were determined as loyal subjects of the king to celebrate the greatest victory ever won. I think it went ahead. And in Newry, flags bunting and the bells of local churches, according to the newsletter, peel forth joyously, whatever that means. In the evening, similar to Maguire's Bridge, people of the town paraded together in a torchlit procession headed by Belgian refugees and both the unionist and nationalist bands of the town. At a public meeting afterwards, a message was read from Stephen Gwynn MP, who said he was sorry that he could not be with them, declaring, I sympathise profoundly with the idea of your demonstration. Irish troops or what, of whatever county or regiment went out to fight for the common honour of Ireland, and it is fitting that Irish men of all sections who desired the victory of the Allied cause should unite to rejoice over the achievement in which Irish troops have played so noble a part. At the close of the festivities, Alex Fisher, a local solicitor, thanked both the nationalist and unionist bands for taking part and added that he was proud to find, quote, they were all still united in Uri. For the duration of the war, there had been a particularly good relationship in the town among Catholics and Protestants, and this would continue for the length of the interwar period, but of course was not unique. The news of the armistice reached Monaghan about noon, and there was, according to the newsletter, to be signs of unmistakable cheerfulness as bands paraded the streets. However, not all celebrations of the peace were indeed peaceful. In, in the early evening in Straban, Abercorn Protestant foot band paraded through the town, decorated with Union Jacks. Street lamps had not been working in the town since the previous winter, and in the dark they were attacked with a volley of stones and mud from persons unknown. 
the drum of the band was smashed and rendered useless. In Dublin, the celebrations of the end of the war were also animated and contentious. A crowd of Trinity College students drove a hearse containing an effigy of the Kaiser covered with a Sinn Féin flag along Grafton Street. A clergyman appeared to be reading a funeral service over the corpse. The hearse was followed by some hundreds shouting and flag-waving, according to the Belfast Telegraph, among them military officers, clergymen, youth and girls. The Irish Times commented, It was the cream of the day's sport. A piece of humour whose point was quickly realised by the spectators. Now, more peaceful celebrations did take place across Dublin, um, important to say, with flags of the Allies alongside Union Jacks raised above many buildings, and the processions could be heard singing the British National Anthem. The Irish Times again noted that by midday streets were filled with festive crowds, and it stated it was the composition of the crowd which made the scenes so remarkable. Quote, Soldiers, sailors, university students, munitions workers, shop assistants formed the bulk of the crowd and they behaved with excellent and good humour. Members of the military through the, the cities um, singing popular songs and Trinity College students commandeered vehicles driving around the city brandishing flags. The paper stated, No sooner had the first Union Jack been run up when it was speedily followed by a blaze of bunting along Grafton Street, College Green, Dame Street, Westmoreland Street, Sackville Street and all adjacent thoroughfares. Many businesses closed for the rest of the day and aeroplanes flew overhead. Into the evening, Crowds remained in the city, and from 6pm onwards, trains packed with passengers transported more people into Dublin to join in the celebrations. The paper stated, Good humour and high spirits marked the characteristics of the throng, and though it might be safely described as boisterous, there was no tendency towards riotousness in any part of the city. In fact, it said it was pleasantly surprised at the noticeable and tenderness with which wounded soldiers were everywhere treated. For a Belfast Telegraph uh, journalist, seeing the large number of Union Jacks raised across Dublin and the scenes of celebration, dispelled his belief that, quote, the community had gone over entirely to the rebel party. A meeting organised by Sinn Féin was taking place at the Mansion House as people celebrated the armistice, and there were some verbal exchanges between the revellers and republicans. Just before 10pm, Hundreds from the meeting marched towards Grafton Street, headed by a Sinn Féin flag, which was seized by a young military officer, before the police intervened to halt an almost inevitable brawl. The following evening, Sinn Féin supporters held a peace demonstration sequel, when a crowd clashed with soldiers at College Green. Shortly afterwards, perhaps reflecting the anger of the military at this demonstration of defiance, Sinn Féin supporters were attacked on Wicklow Street. So, outside of Ireland, the news was also very similar. It spread in the same way outside of Belfast, Dublin, London, Paris, Melbourne, New York, similar Armistice Day experiences. But what was very noticeable was that little was said about the mothers who had lost their sons, the children who had been left fatherless, the wives left widow widows. This would come after. These events were not captured by the camera or reported by the journalist in the city or town centre. Did the bereaved join the throngs at Belfast City Hall and across the province? A majority of families knew the 11th of November, on the 11th of November 1918 that their fathers, brothers and sons would return. A minority knew that they would not. The former wanted to celebrate, the latter couldn't. The Northern Whig noted that, amidst the jubilant scenes, the vibrant colours of the flags and the commotion in the centre of Belfast, quote, many a sympathetic thought went out to those of their fellow citizens whom the war has cruelly bereaved and by whom the paean of victory cannot be echoed without a pang of deep sorrow. The Belfast Telegraph agreed, stating, quote, the, great army, the greater army which mourns at home, wives for husbands and mothers for sons, who are today beneath the sods in France and Flanders. For those lonely ones, the gladness of this hour is chastened by the thought of the vacant chair. It was clear that although Ireland celebrated heartily the end of the war, it had to celebrate in the shadow and at the price of many of its sons. Celebrations of victory, even in a just cause, could not fill the vacant chairs at the kitchen table. Even from the perspective that the war was over and no more should die in the field of battle, would be no consolation for the thousands of Irish bereaved. Eleven years after the armistice, Winston Churchill recalled his emotion on the 11th of November 1918, stating, quote, Too much blood had been spilt. The gaps in every home were wide and empty. The work of the world had to go on. 
and the ache for those who would never come home could not be danced away. For the French, it was particularly difficult to celebrate. In a country in which the towns had been occupied, millions of men from several nations had been killed and buried, and in which the countryside lay not much more than a quagmire. As one commentator noted, the French were, after all, making a noise in the shadow of the graveyards. Cyril Falls, who served with the 36th Ulster Division, reflected in 1922, the armistice was celebrated, quote, celebrated by troops in France without the wild hilarity, wild almost to hysteria, that greeted it elsewhere. Instead, Falls noted, the division, quote, after years of discomfort and exposure, they slept softly, undisturbed by the crash of bombs. Despite the numerous reports of mass celebration along the lines, for many soldiers, this did not appear to be the reality. Percy Crozier, a brigadier with the Ulster Division, expressed similar sentiment. Quote, Only those men who actually marched back from the battle line on the 11th of November 1918 can ever know or realise the mixed feelings. No fighting man worth his salt desired at that moment to do anything but forget the past and forge the future. All the world over, where men and women congregated in large numbers, they went mad. Not so the fighting men, fresh from the line, dumped down in liberated areas where children beg for bread and grown-ups thank God for delivery. The stay-at-homes of victorious countries are dancing and drinking in the capitals of Europe and patting themselves on the back because they have won the war. So the people of Ireland awakened on the morning of the 11th of November 1918 in the knowledge that the war that had ravaged Europe for over four years could conclude at any moment. Just as everyday business got underway, the declaration that victory had finally been achieved spread to every town and village. Rapidly, from central Belfast to the shipyards and beyond, people embraced and rejoiced at the news of the armistice. However, exactly one year to the day, events could not have been more different. No longer was there jubilation in the streets, the bells of celebration from the churches across Ireland, the festival atmosphere that the press felt reminiscent of 12th July celebrations. The Northern Whig editorial explained, The announcement of the armistice with Germany once instantly followed in the metropolis by an outbreak of exuberant rejoicing, which thronged the streets with shouting and flag-waving demonstrations. The first anniversary of the announcement produced a scene extraordinary in contrast. So what had changed and why had this change occurred? In the 12 months since the end of the war, there had been much discontent and industrial unrest. The first winter of peace had brought little comfort. There had been problems concerning the demobilisation of troops, twinned with labour strikes, a recurrence of an influenza epidemic and a lack of jobs for returning soldiers. But there had also been further peace celebrations. However, less than a month before the, the first anniversary of the ceasefire, the government had no extensive mark to plan or to mark the 11th November as an appropriate date to remember the war and its human cost. Sir Percy Fitzpatrick, who had served as a High Commissioner in South Africa in early November, submitted, uh, sorry, in South Africa, in early November, he submitted a memorandum to the British Cabinet stating, in the hearts of our people, there is a real desire to find some lasting expression of their feeling for those who gave their lives in the war. Fitzpatrick explained that during the conflict in South Africa each day, a three minutes pause was observed at noon, when all work, all talk and all movement were suspended for three minutes that they could concentrate as one in thinking of those, the living and the dead, who had pledged and given themselves for all that they believed in. Sir Percy suggested a pause would be a fitting expression of commemoration of those who we can never repay our glorious and immortal dead. Although Fitzpatrick is often alluded as being the instigator of the silent commemoration celebrated today, there has also been some speculation and argument over where the, the idea of the silent pause originated. In fact, in 1938, the Belfast Telegraph outlined other individuals, including King George V, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Lord Mayor of Belfast, and an Australian on the staff of a London newspaper. During 1916, silence had been adopted in Belfast to remember the large number of men from the city who had died during the opening of days of the Battle of the Somme on the 1st and 2nd of July. The Lord Mayor of the city, Crawford McCullough, suggested a five-minute silence would be an appropriate manner in which to remember the dead. Replacing the usual 12th celebrations on the 12th of July itself, Belfast fell silent between 12 noon and 12.05pm. 
a poem submitted to the Northern Whig sensed the silence would be, quote, a pause to the loom, a halt in the street, a shadow, a gloom, where the huge hammers beat, a striving with pain, a stirring with pride, for the kinsman slain, for the brave who died. The local press supported the tribute, and the silence was described as a token of practical sympathy. The Whig stating, there has never been an occasion when the hearts of Ulstermen and Ulster women have been so deeply and universally moved. Religious services were held in some churches, including in the Presbyterian Assembly buildings, where the clock tower and, and the tower, uh, sorry, the clock in the tower struck once at twelve, having told for five minutes the hymn "Abide with Me." The Northern Whig noted, "I've got the quote here for you. I've, I've amended it slightly, or I've shortened it slightly." On the stroke of twelve, all trams and vehicular traffic came to a standstill, and the stoppage of business and commerce was almost instantaneous. In High Street, Royal Avenue, and all the principal thoroughfares, there was dead silence, and in shops where blinds were closely drawn, no business was transacted during the solemn pause. The request of the Lord Mayor was carried out to the letter. We could not better honour our noble dead or give more fitting expression to the deep feelings of their bereaved relatives that be commemorating the anniversary as we did yesterday. And then they also said at the end of it, when we celebrate it in the future, we will do it fuller and richer. Belfast was undoubtedly one of the first cities to hold an official silence and the Northern, Northern Wake already saw a future for it and the silent pause to remember the dead. Therefore, before the war had even ended, silence had been adopted in Belfast and Cape Town to remember the dead. Nevertheless, Australians celebrate a, a Melbourne-based journalist who was working for the Daily Mail in England as the person who initiated the silence. Edward George Honey, under the pseudonym Warren Foster, wrote a letter to the London Evening News in May 1919 appealing for a five-minute silence to celebrate the end of the war. He wrote that five minutes of national remembrance through silent contemplation would be a suitable way to remember the dead who won the peace. So perhaps it is safest to say that Edward Honey was the first man to suggest a way uh, to remember in print, but Fitzpatrick had, can possibly take the credit for taking the idea to the British cabinet and subsequently the king and the Archbishop of Canterbury. There is no doubt that Belfast had a role to play, and shaping how the war would be commemorated after the conflict. The city observed five minutes silence, workers halted, people came to a standstill, and it was viewed as a fitting expression of gratitude for the lost, the central premises of commemoration after the war. We cannot be sure if either Honey, Fitzpatrick or Lloyd George paid much attention to the time of silence in Belfast. But in the years after the war, the manner in which commemoration would be carried out across the empire would almost be identical to how Belfast remembered in July 1916. The idea of silence representing respect for the dead was nothing new. Yet what was, was the original uh, manner in, in which the victory on such a large scale was being celebrated as a tribute to the dead. On the 7th of November, King George V sent out a request for a national pause across the empire and his memorandum was carried in all the national newspapers. And here's parts of it. It is my desire that at the hour when the armistice came into force, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, there may be a brief space of two minutes, a complete suspension of all normal activities. No elaborate organisation appears to be required. At a given signal, which can be easily arranged to suit the circumstances of each locality, I believe that we shall gladly interrupt our business and pleasure, whatever it may be, and unite in this simple service of silence and remembrance. And effectively... The origin of the two-minute silence is this referendum and remains, we all know those words, we could probably say them with our eyes closed. It was expected that the time, the, the pause and the time would be a private contemplation, remembering loved ones in prayer and reasserting a commitment to peace. The press in Belfast again loyally gave support. The Northern Whig declaring, it is a tribute in which all can equally share, rich and poor, a ritual in which all can have their place and part. Nonetheless, a year on, celebration of peace and victory had become a sombre and cheerless commemoration. The Northern Whig commented, quote, A year has passed since the armistice was signed. If it has not brought us all the benefits that the more sanguine of us imagined that peace would have brought us all at once, we must recognise on looking back that it has brought us many inestimable boons. But they weren't quite sure what they were yet. 
The celebrations of this day the previous year appeared to have left a bitter aftertaste. Indeed, it would be naive to think and imagine that the victory could immediately secure economic stability, job for ex-soldiers and a return to the pre-Edwardian era of prosperity. But for, but for the United Kingdom, emerging as one of the nations who supposedly won the war, victory was not alleviating, alleviating the difficulties of the post-war society. The silence was to, com to commence at 11am, but what would happen then? There was no precedent from previous years, and although it was expected silent contemplation would be a form of remembrance as it was in 1916, what was the manner, uh, what, what manner was it appropriate to act? And you, you would have found this quite often in the early 20s and 30s, um, ex-servicemen on one side wanting to celebrate, and then the bereaved and the mothers and the families wanting to commemorate. Uh, and it did create quite a lot of problems in the 1920s, particularly for the ex-servicemen who um, describe themselves as the inglorious living because it was um, it was always would have been better to die at the front and come home and not for the, the normal reasons which we would assume is that there was a guilt it was more because of, of the treatment they were left to the side, they weren't on the podium um, it was the, the wives, the mothers uh, and the rest who were on the podium rather than the ex-servicemen they were quite far behind so what in later years became known as the silence or simply the silence later on was observed in one of two ways firstly as a pause in the business of everyday life activities halting for two minutes or secondly and alternatively or possibly a part of both people gathering at a particular site to be with the crowd for the purpose of marking the silence but the problem of course was that very few permanent memorials had been constructed by 1919 so people began to gather at the civic centre or a local place of worship in Belfast, the Lord Mayor took responsibility for the organisation of the proceedings and made a special appeal to the citizens of the city to observe at the King's request. A special notice had been sent to the industrial heartland of Queen's Island and workers were aware that three short blasts in the shipyard's horn signalled the commencement and conclusion of the two minutes pause. At Queen's University, classes were to remain still at their desks, Belfast schoolchildren were to set down their pencils and naval ships stop and soldiers stand the attention. The Northern Whig stated, the empire on which the sun never sets will celebrate this solemn moment practically throughout the 24 hours. Exactly a year to the day from the great celebration and rejoicing at the news of the armistice across the UK, in Belfast the horns of the shipyards, the bells in nearly every town and village church, the patriotic singing of the national anthem and the fun and frolics at the opera house had disappeared. Belfast and other Irish cities were emotionally different. How the war would be viewed in the future was at the hands of the government ministers and the King and King George in 1919, and they decided to honour sacrifice. Nonetheless, November 1919 was not entirely a face from celebration to sadness. Some still celebrated. A number of ex-servicemen asked, why should we be sombre and subdued on the anniversary of the greatest day of our lives? A small number of ex-servicemen abhorred the official ceremony and instead, and instead preferred reunions and entertainment such as armistice dances. Despite this, the 11th of November 1919 was marked by silence and contemplation, replacing the celebration of the year before. So armistice dances particularly were uh, very popular in the 1920s and um, early 1930s, but they began to drift uh, and not be so important after that. Uh, I think maybe because it was a a conflict of what was happening earlier in the day. But what did happen was making memorials. It rapidly became clear with a two minutes pause that people wanted somewhere to gather at a particular site to be with the crowd for the purpose of collectively marking the silence. While remembering the dead is frequently conceived as a personal affair, commemoration of the war dead became a public collective event which implicated the society as a whole. Individual grief was not separated from the larger canvas in which memory was mobilised. And the neat binaries of individual and collective collapsed during the war and indeed the years following it. War memorials had been erected to remember other wars and many communities already had plans underway to construct a memorial to remember their dead. But this was of an unprecedented magnitude. As a result, probably the largest and most popular movement for the erection of public monuments ever known in Western society began. 
In the immediate post-war years, memorial making tended to remain on a smaller scale, such as personal, small firm or church rules of honour, before communities began to establish war memorial committees to raise funds for a town, village or even a regional memorial. With the British ban and exhumations in the battlefield coming into force in 1915, the brief were left with no tangible focus for their grief. A memorial could provide a focus and act as a surrogate grave. War, memori war memorials were erected in almost every town and village across what came to be Northern Ireland in 1921 and in most large towns of the Free State. Tributes took the form of plaques, tablets, cenotaphs, obelisks, gardens, catafalques, commemorative walls, cairns, columns, archways, paintings and even murals. At schools and universities, memorials took the form of halls, libraries, pavilions or playing fields and many churches benefited from a new organ, peal of bells, communion reel or a stained glass window. The construction of a hostel and the building of houses for those who returned became a form of memorial for those who did not. In Ireland, a variety of monuments to the dead spoke to and for communities. Monuments to earlier conflicts such as the Crimean War and the South African War had been erected, but most of the names were professional soldiers, not the young men from the same streets, the same schools and the same workplace who perished in the Great War. The difference was the size, scale and totality of loss in the Great War, which paid no reverence to age, creed, politics or religion. Although most memorials were built in the decade after the war, temporary street shrines, honour boards and illustrated lists of those who had joined up were popular in some places during the war. For example, a roll of honour was compiled in April 1915 in Newry, listing 867 names of men serving in the army and navy. At a cross-community meeting held in the town hall, the roll of honour was presented to Newry Urban Council. Before and after the ceremony, Nationalists and Unionists paraded to and from the town hall, and ministers from several denominations took part in the proceedings. Roman Catholic priest Father F. J. O'Hare delivered a stirring speech, which was followed by addresses from the local Church of Ireland and Presbyterian ministers. The local newspaper, the Frontier Sentinel, noted the purpose of the meeting was to, quote, promote and encourage the patriotic spirit now prevailing. After the war, memorials came to play an important role in the cathartic process of healing, embracing remembrance and aid in reconciling the, li uh, the living with the dead. Memorials could represent heroism, loss, patriotism, peace, aggression, national iconography, nationalism and a variety of other sentiments simultaneously. But in Ireland, similar to Britain, the biggest debate was whether to construct memorials that would simply be uh, symbolic monuments or build utilitarian memorials with benefits to ex-servicemen, young people and the local community. At a meeting of the Comrades of the Great War in Belfast in 1919, the Council of the Organisation stated, quote, In the opinion of this Grand Council, the erection of works of a utilitarian character which would not serve as a lasting memorial to our dead or unfitting as a commemoration of the sacrifice of those who fell in the Great War. Figurative statues, tablets, windows, obelisks and cenotaphs would take precedence over a new village hall, bowling green or public building. For the utilitarian schemes that did go ahead, often the organising committee either added to their plans a monument or were faced to do so at a later date. One town that did suffer due to this debate waited for 82 years before the memorial was finally unveiled in the year 2000, and that was Balamoni. In 1920, things started well enough. A committee was appointed to present plans for a, for a memorial and the idea for an Irish round tower pleased most and was passed. However, in subsequent months, there was a debate whether the memorial should simply be a monument or have a practical use. They then discussed extending the town hall, constructing a hospital and controversy continued until all ideas were entirely scrapped. And here we have it, luxury. There we go. In 1959, the British Legion erected this bronze plaque at the back of their premises to commemorate the dead from both wars, and to the safe embarrassment, no names, no names were added. That is, until finally, in 2000, the memorial was made complete, with the names being added. Appropriately, or perhaps ironically, with the unveiling ceremony, the opening hymn was Abide With Me. So generally, after the Great War, there were three stages of memorial building. 
Stage 1. First, in the immediate post-war years, memorial making tended to remain on a smaller scale such as personal, small firm, club, school or church rules of honour. Between 1919 and 1921, several small memorials were presented to churches in the form of brass bookends, prayer desks, communion tables, hymn boards and even a new pulpit. Some churches also benefited, benefited from the installation of electricity for the first time or a new organ. And most of us will know this one. One important personal memorial unveiled in 1919 was that at Belfast's second largest shipyard, Workman and Clark. Employees gathered for a special ceremony and wreaths were laid on a memorial erected chiefly in memory of Lieutenant Edward Workman, late manager of the yard and son of the firm director. director. But the names of all other men from the company were also added to the memorial. And you all probably know this as well, if you were here on Saturday, not too far where we were. Um, but you probably can't see it from this picture, but it's quite worn now. Um, actually, I do have some closer images, and you can see you might be able to see that. So the terracotta mould of Edward Workman has survived the weather bidding. However, the stone has eroded, as you can see, um, with, the, with the, the years, as the years have passed. And I suppose until um, the last sort of 10 years, when there's been a lot of work happening in that area, it's, it's kind of been forgotten about. And I was actually saying to Richard Grayson on, on Saturday that um, I was in a, a place outside Antrim, the salvage yard, if anybody knows it, and there was the Liverpool Heart and the Wolf Memorial for sale. So I thought that was a... <laughs> I didn't have the money to pay. Um, it was something like £10,000, but it just shows you where these things can end up. It's a real shame. And that is something that, you know... Is happening time and time again. These memorials are being forgotten about or removed. I know that there's others, churches, uh, North Belfast, um, is a large decline with um, changing the population, and some of the churches are closing down. They're being turned into the clubs, and the memorials are either being stripped out or left in them, and uh, people are forgetting about them. So this one remains, this one's protected, but some others aren't. After the war, memorials in places such as the gasworks, train stations, rugby grounds, and newspaper offices were also erected. A plaque was unveiled at the Belfast Telegraph, but I believe it's since disappeared unless anybody's seen it. Uh, it was at the front and then the, uh, during the troubles with a bomb uh, at the corner, ironically, of course, because there was Second World War bombs there too, they, they moved the memorial um, from that door. And I don't know if anybody's seen it since. Has anybody, has anybody else seen it? No, it's disappeared. At Ravenhill Rugby Ground, it's good that we've had the full renovation, but we can still have the, the war memorial there. Um, although I'm not sure the same could be said for Aviva Stadium. Um, I tried to find it, but I couldn't. So in the immediate years after the war, church memorials, local firms and clubs erected. Although several larger towns um, had already commenced their schemes, it would take a few years for the money to be collected and these be finalised. And it was until then, uh, in places such as Oma, Inniskill and Brookborough, an Armistice Day ex-service uh, men's parade, you know, they would pray to the Boer War memorials. Um, until something else was in place for them. Okay, so let's look at the second stage. From around 1922 onwards, memorials began to emerge in small communities, towns and villages. The committees in Balamoni were established with the job of finding a site, deciding upon the appropriate style of memorial and raising the finances to pay for it. And in most of these committees and all the different places, they usually had local council representatives, religious figures, sometimes the local MP, representatives from the business community or a local nobleman. And by the end of 1925, memorials under 812 have been erected, let's go for somewhere close, Hollywood. Um, I always remark um, in the early years about how militaristic these are. Uh, after, you know, at the end of the war, people didn't want, there was not a lot of talk about militarism, but yet a lot of the memorials did reflect that. So you've got your soldier with a gun, and Port Stewart, and, uh, that was 1924. It was the wife of the Prime Minister who unveiled this one. Um, the Arab oh, yes, this was one of the places that the, um, the council thought it would be good to uh, build a town hall. And what ended up happening was that they built the town hall in the 1930s. And the money was put together, together and put into the war memorial. And you'll, you'll find that there was lots of different places as well. And there was some sense in what the comrades of the Great War were saying. They were saying it needs to be forever. You need to build something forever. And some of the, uh, like for example, Dervik, they built the ex-servicemen's hall, which is now gone, but they've taken the plaques and they've put them out um, beside the road. So 
you would think that more practical memorials would be more beneficial, but then they do have a shelf life, whereas the stone obelisks tend to remain. <coughs> um, but we can also talk later on, if we get time at the end, about Larne. And, of course, they moved it because of traffic. Um, they moved it out to, to beside a church. But yet in um, uh, Australia, that was commonplace, moving memorials from the, always put it in the middle, middle of the road, the road got busy, then they moved it. Um, and I should also mention bush mills. These are all very, very similar. But there's other ones as well, which are very, very different. This, again, this was 1921. Um, some of the top guys, uh, Charles Hartwell from London, designed this one, cost 1,300 pounds, which is a lot of money. Um, at this particular time and actually the Coleraine Chronicle commented on this one the figure is shown as if waiting the onslaught of an enemy or going into a bayonet charge so again back to that it's strange the bloodshed um, it wasn't that common and you can see the inscription it's just worth commenting on this you probably all you'll straight away recognize that the 1919 is probably to do with uh, the fact that the, the peace treaty wasn't signed but there are war memorials out there um, that actually say 1914 to 1920 as well, not so many. And I should also mention Dungannon, I can do that tonight, uh, the expert is in the room. So uh, I always like to mention this one uh, because of the, it's not just about the soldiers, it's hard to read on this, but you do have, uh, there's women's names on this memorial, uh, and it's soldiers and nurses is the, the second line, it's probably quite hard to see, and there they are on the memorial itself. So we, we often sort of, talk about the war as just a, a man it was just about the men um, and that obviously came out quite a lot in the iconography but yet there were some mention in certain places not not so much but um, it was there and of course one slightly different but absolutely beautiful is Portrush and I always like to come back to this one um, 1922 this was unveiled again £1,300 so good value for money and Lady McNaughton unveiled this one so um, and another quick one, let's have a look at, Queen's University, 1924 by the Duke of York. And there's quite a lot of um, detail around how long it took them to get the information together on the Queen's War Memorial and the discussions. Um, they started three or four weeks from the war. Um, there, there was a lot of discussion around what was going to happen there. Um, and actually getting it all together by 1924 was probably quite good. Another beautiful war memorial again. So I've just shown you know, some of these as a, as a flavour um, and we're going to look at some others uh, a bit later on as well. But I just want to move on and talk about something um, and related to all commemoration after the war. And that's it. The involvement um, of religion and politics. Often it is assumed that commemoration of the wars have been divisive between the two communities. However, it seems during the interwar period there was a good relationship between Protestants and Catholics and commemoration was often ecumenical. On Armistice Day in the 1920s in Dungannon, Boy Scouts, Girl Guides and the Police Band, the British Legion, relatives, school representatives and local merchants all gathered together to commemorate the war and the entire party paraded to a church, either the Church of Ireland, Presbyterian or Roman Catholic. Indeed, Protestants and Catholics gathered to remember the war in several other places too. Catholic ex-servicemen in Lurgan, quote, were equally anxious to commemorate their war dead. And in 1922 in Longford, Catholic ex-servicemen prayed to St Mel's Roman Catholic Cathedral to remember their colleagues who had made the same supreme sacrifice. The press also recorded ecumenical commemoration praise in Armagh, Inniskillen and Londonderry in this period. In Inniskillen, Armistice Day parades were led by the Orange Pipe Band and Nationalist Flute Band. Indeed, what is perhaps extraordinary when you look back was the attendance of W.T. Cosgrave, the President of the Free State at the time, at commemorations in Cork in 1923. In Newry, after the war, joint services were held following on from good relations during, during the war. On Armistice Night 1918, Nationalist and Unionist bands paraded through the town together, and in the, in the, and in the 1920s, large interdenominational parades organised by the British Legion strengthened the relationships further. In 1926, ex-servicemen gathered at the local barracks, paraded together to the temporary cenotaph, from the cenotaph to their respective services, reformed and paraded back to the barracks and joined together for tea. By the following year, commemorations had become so large that the parade had to move to a larger site and the Catholic contingent marched not only to the cathedral but also to the parish church. So there was quite a lot of this, especially in the 1920s. So it was out of respect. It, um, 
I've done quite a lot of uh, analysis on the, the problems of, of um, Catholic services and Protestant services and how the two didn't, you know, the two ideologies were very, very different despite the religious elements um, that we would normally attribute. But it was, it was interesting that out of respect, they would pray to one service, drop those people off, then pray to the next place, drop those people off, and then come back together or, you know, so somehow come together again and then have tea afterwards all together which is interesting it's not often that's what we hear when we, we we talk about commemoration in fact relationships appeared to be so good at this in this period that the newry reporter stated that the town was proud of its diversity of religious and political opinion that infused for the parade and was a striking example of cordial relations between all classes and creeds so again they don't even see it as a religious element it's about class and creed so similarly, in, in Londonderry, relationships were good, and after 1934, the Roman Catholic Ex-Combatants Association established its own parade to the city's memorial, as were relationships in Portadown. When the town's memorial was unveiled in 1925, no less than the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Armagh was invited to attend, and wreaths were laid by representatives from the local Catholic Church and the ancient order of Hibernians. In Dublin, significant commemorations took place at College Green, especially in the 1920s, but in the 1930s, De Valera pushed the commemorations, the commemorations out, to Phoenix, uh, out to Phoenix Park, sorry, it's too exciting this, perhaps in the hope that they would become out of sight and out of mind, but this wouldn't be the case. In fact, it got stronger and stronger. Um, when you look at the commemorations in Dublin in the 1920s and 1930s, it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and so much so that when De Valera tried to push it out to Phoenix Park, the idea was to try and reduce it and, and quell some of the support and get it out of the city centre, um, but it didn't work. Okay, and the third stage then, this was mainly cities, and um, so I would put it into the, the, the phase that the places like Belfast and Derry, where it took a longer time so that some of these cities tried to get the names all together and then they realised it was so difficult that either they dropped the idea of putting in names um, or they just waded through it and names may have been missing. But there was also problems as well, and, and this is what I put into the third stage too, where there was um, memorials that suffered problems of site, finances, disagreement over design, complexities concerning the scale and number of the war dead. And uh, also memorials which was more than a simple obelisk and, and took time to build. Lurgan had faced several problems in its campaign to erect a memorial surrounding the debate whether to build the symbolic or the practical, as we discussed earlier, um, that discussion. And in 1918, a technical school was proposed early straight after the war, but the following year, public pressure resulted in the monument being erected instead. The project was then abandoned in 1923, but the problems were finally overcome, and a memorial was eventually unveiled in 1928. There were similar problems, and this is a well-known one, I'm sure we've all come across this one. Uh, similar delays for the County Antrim War Memorial. Just two weeks after the war ended, several local public representatives decided to raise a monument to the men of the county. The subsequent War Memorial Committee debated where to situate this memorial, considering Remore Head in Portrush, Slemish near Ballymena, the Giant's Causeway, Colin Top north, uh, north of Ballyclare, Knocka Hill near Carrickfergus, and the Antrim County Courthouse in Belfast. Deciding upon Nocca before the end of 1919, it took 18 more years before its completion, as the project was riddled with financial difficulties. Members of the local community tended to contribute to the church, workplace or club memorial in the vicinity of their homes, as names of family, friends and colleagues would be listed on them, and they would have more personal meaning. The same may have been true for the parochial memorial, and people may have felt obliged to contribute to both. Donating to a further memorial in the city or in behalf of a county was probably too much for most people, especially during a time of economic depression. And when and schemes such as NACA struggled to find these funds, probably a lot to do with that. There was other issues too, but funding was one of the main ones. And we should also mention this one, not too far away. Uh, this was taken maybe a decade ago. Uh, not much has changed, to be honest. And this is um, 1929, it was unveiled after six years of discussion. I'm aware that Robert's in the room, so he's going to correct me here. <laughs> However, with the passing of time, it has become the, the representation of, of what the 11th of November stood for in the city. And um, I would also say and, and make the, the connection that the 1st of July celebrations of the Somme are also um, 
are centred around the Senate half in Belfast. But of course, this would never be described as Northern Ireland's war memorial, which is quite ironic because it's in the capital city. This title remains solely for Thetford Tower. Of course, not even in Northern Ireland. And this was something that was mentioned quite a lot in the 1920s and 30s in the press, uh, that they assumed that Belfast was just another city. They didn't see it as a representation of the state itself. Of course, unveiled in 1921, um, it was a bit earlier, uh, but it was modelled on the Clandyboy estate where the Ulster Division um, trained before they went out. Mm. However, memorials just do not come in the form of stone monuments, plaques or buildings. In fact, by the end of the 1920s, there, were, there was already discussion of the waste of money on memorials, where money could be spent elsewhere to provide ex-servicemen with work, wages and help them out of despair. And so in the 1930s, more practical schemes would emerge, and with this in mind, and although not many new memorials in stone emerged after the Second World War, more practical schemes would be a byproduct of the many stone monuments erected in the interwar period. Most memorials across Northern Ireland followed convention, and many symbolic statues of soldiers, crosses and obelisks appeared across the, the countryside, but others were very different. So here's one again that probably recognise. In the early 1920s, it was suggested that improved housing would constitute as a suitable monument to those who would not return. The, this idea was embraced by the Irish Sailors and Soldiers Trust and led to the construction of quality housing in East Belfast at what has become known locally as Somtown and other parts of Ireland as well, including just outside Dublin, uh, more locally in Dungannon and White Abbey and uh, of course in Derry as well. Designed to be a colony reserved for ex-servicemen, it purposely created a homely and quiet community. The 146 new homes were built on six wide avenues named after familiar battlefields in France. And uh, the centrepiece is the, the Celtic Cross, which again isn't used that often in Irish war memorials. There's another one just outside Hollywood, up towards Seahill, but that tended not to be used in the north as a, as a typical war memorial. And a few others then, just I want to mention, in 1966, with the 50th anniversary of the Battle of the Somme, a new bridge was being built across the River Lagan. It was suggested that the name would be Somme Bridge. However, with the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising also following in the same year, this was being viewed as a bit too contentious. So some unionists wanted it to be named Carson Bridge, but in the end, with a royal visit already in the pipeline, it became Queen Elizabeth II Bridge. And the Queen unveiled the bridge herself on her trip to Belfast, uh, where people threw bricks at her. And of course, we know this one as well, the Beetle painting, again, this is a memorial because it remembers the war. And I think that's the, the point. It's not just about the stone plinths that we see um, scattered across the countryside. There's lots of other places, lots of other versions and forms. And um, in the orange order as well, there's lots of orange banners. Um, I've actually seen an orange banner with uh, the soldier at the front with a, a gun in his hand. Rather than <laughs> so there's lots of variations too. But in the 1990s, uh, there was no doubt there was a rejuvenation of interest in the two world wars and in several loyalist areas new murals have been painted and i'm going to show you some that are probably gone now they've been replaced as they, they tend to do but i've uh, thankfully i've got these on file and we took photos um, a couple of years ago so this first one is in new mosley and um, going over the top and um, that's probably from about five or six years ago and you see that the, the, the clear connection with the uvf um, and then we also have this mural that's painted in Monkstown. Um, this is also in Arnon the Great War in Keith Jeffrey's book. Uh, I don't know, I can't remember if he uh, pointed out the spelling mistake, but tell marks if, if he spotted. And of course, this is um, William Connor's sketching. So it's based on William Connor's sketching of the charge of the Ulster Division, this, the middle bit, and then the other bits have been added in. Um, I think that may have been painted over more recently. They've just repainted it, it's, it's not a new one. Um, but it's still in existence. Um, and of course, most people know this one as well from East Belfast with the, uh, the VCs, uh, which is also something. So you can see, I would argue that these two are memorials to the war. However, just thinking about these murals, is this a 1990s? Um, is this just something that's new? Is it fresh? Or is this something that's been around for a long time? In fact, in 1919, in July 1919, only seven months after the end of the war, a mural was dedicated to the local battalion of the Ulster Division in East Belfast for, quote, the heroes of Ulster who died in the Great European War, 1914 to Of course, we, we don't often hear those words used um, today. And this mural 
was painted in 1933. I haven't been able to track the mural um, from 1919 um, through, despite my best efforts. Okay, so a few reflections then. After the war, the most important and significant collective rituals in all the former belligerent powers was commemoration. It was no different in Ireland, where the effects of the war permeated the lives of those who had direct experience in it, the ex-servicemen, those whose loved ones fought and did not return, the bereaved, those who worked in the home front to keep it going, the workers, as well as those diametrically opposed to it, sometimes called the rebels. In addition, despite the sacrifices made by ex-servicemen and, and their time at the front, it would be women who would receive the central position around war memorials and in commemorative services, as the mothers and widows of the men who had died. They would be the group given pride of place in the stands around the Belfast Cenotaph, reserved the pew towards the front of the local church, the best viewing position at the unveiling ceremony, as a result of the sacrifice that they had made. Commemoration then focused on the mothers, the widows and the families of the men who did not return, rather than the men who did. The commemorations of the war that took place each year were shadowed, on occasions overshadowed, by the contemporary domestic and foreign issues that impacted inside and outside of Ireland. Although described as a war to end all war, it became an armistice for only 20 years. In this period, several groups played an integral part in the process of honouring and keeping alive the memory of the dead, and reminding the wider community of the needs of the living as it does today. Commemoration has not changed significantly in this period, in fact it has hardly changed. Gradually ceremonies on the 1st of July came to reflect the ceremonies on the 11th of November, with some minor differences. After the Second World War, there was much more of a focus on the utilitarian memorials to the dead and inclusion of ex-servicemen. In some ways, the lessons learned from after the end of the First World War were recognised. During the Troubles, commemoration was impacted directly, as it had strong political connections strengthened, and as the, and as the time progressed, dead bodies began to be included in commemorative ceremonies. In the last 10 to 15 years, there has been talk of a defrosting of the national amnesia taking place in Ireland specifically in the south towards commemoration. It is clear that political motivation in both communities had led to a shared narrative that as Richard Grayson noted on Saturday, one which does not wish to dispel where Irish men from both sides fought and died together. It would be true to say that the impact of politics and commemoration of the war in Ireland has been contested. The thread of tribal politics stitched into the fabric of Irish memory has not been removed from commemoration of the Great War. This war, at least, fought on battlefields outside of Ireland. Specifically between 1919 and 1931, Armistice Day was celebrated throughout Southern Ireland, but with Eamon de Valera's election, as George Boyce described, quote, ex-servicemen and their cause simply sank into oblivion as nationalists applied a sort of field dressing to the Great War experience. De Valera ensured the war would be eliminated from the public mind. However, commemoration continued for the duration of the interwar period in both Northern and Southern Ireland. Perhaps it was less amnesia than the role of the nationalist Catholic servicemen was bypassed by the authors of Ireland's cultural narrative. Keith Jeffrey noted there was a considerable degree of collective disengagement and that Belfast nationalist ex-servicemen were sidelined and marginalised. For the South, it evoked embarrassment and resentment rather than amnesia. In the last 10 years, perhaps with a revisionist hue, there has been a lot of discussion about Irish men's role in the war. But perhaps, as Richard Grayson suggested on Saturday, the evidence has been there all along. In terms of commemoration, what perhaps should not be surprising is the amount of ecumenical remembrance that did take place, particularly throughout the interwar years. There is no doubt that the British Legion and its predecessor, the Comrades of the Great War, also broke down stereotypes and political differences, vowing to stay outside of tribal politics and help ex-servicemen ex on merit of need, rather than party affiliation. So in conclusion, today it could be said commemoration has essentially returned to where it was in the late 1930s, with the sprinkling of Roman Catholic involvement at British Legion organised parades across the country, and a growing understanding of the war. And in addition to this, an acceptance of war commemoration. Nonetheless, as Frank Hart wrote, quote, those in power write the history and those who suffer write the songs. Unionists may have held the pen to write the pages of Ulster's history in the north, but Republicans held the pen in the south. And while unionists conflated the impact of the war, in the south the role of Catholic Irishmen in the Great War was written out of the Irish cultural narrative. 
Central to commemoration should be the reflection of the words of the famous poet Siegfried Sassoon, whose words still ask, quote, Have you forgotten yet? Look down and swear by the slain of the war that you'll never forget. After 100 years since the psalm, there appears to be no concern of this being the case in Ireland. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.